Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're bringing you the recording of our recent event, Tory Nation, How One Party Took Over, recorded on the 10th of May 2023. The Conservative Party has been in power in the United Kingdom since 2010, stumbling its way through corruption scandals, the turmoil of Brexit, a pandemic and five prime ministers. And yet, it's won the last four elections in a row. How? Samuel Earle came to Intelligence Square to shed light on the Conservatives' remarkable grip on power throughout history. Drawing from his new book, Tory Nation, Earl explored the Conservatives' ruling class origins in the 18th century, their influence on the British press and their historical appeal to working class voters to piece together the reasons for their political success. To hear the full-length episode of the event and to support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations, just head over to intelligencesquared.com members to become a member today. Now over to our host, commissioning editor and writer for The New Statesman, Will Lloyd. Firstly, congratulations on a remarkably distressing uh, x-ray of our country, its history, through the Conservative Party. I think I want to start with one of the things in the book that you say is a sort of key strut that holds up the scaffold of Tory Britain, and that is the monarchy. It was the coronation over the weekend. And I think, as is the case with so many things in the book, you have sort of startlingly original things to say about the monarchy. So why don't we start there? What is the role of the monarchy in Tory Britain? Yeah, thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this chat about my new book. So I talk really about three main pillars of the Tory nation in the book. And I, I, as the kind of embodiment of conservative Britain and the ones I kind of isolate are public schools, uh, the House of Lords and the monarchy. And I finished the book, actually, just as we were watching the Queen's funeral. And now it feels quite fitting that the book is coming out for King Charles' coronation. And I think these big royal events really where you see the Tory nation in full bloom. I think maybe two features of it that feel quite central to the book, like of the spectacle. One is the spectacle of agedness. What we see when we see King Charles being coronated through the very anachronism of the rituals, we're given this feeling that Britain is a very old country that has existed for a thousand years and will exist for a thousand years more. And the kind of effect of that message is to create this idea of Britain as something that always needs to be protected rather than something that needs to change and transform and evolve. So it establishes stability as a kind of foundational value and at the foundation of Britain's existence and character. So I think that's one of the big messages that's always kind of emanating from the monarchy is the agedness of Britain, the unique agedness of Britain as a country. I think the other one that's really interesting is the, you know, the fact that it's on the one hand so clearly a ruling class institution. It's, you know, embedded in these incredible hierarchies of uh, inherited privilege. And yet it somehow through its agedness, it appears neutral as something that isn't about power, but is something that is about Britain. I was very struck watching the telly on, on Saturday 
And there was at some point an interview with Stephen Fry where he was he was defending the monarchy and he was saying it's so much better to have a king or a queen as your head of state because if your head of state was elected, it would suddenly be very partisan. It would be conservative or labor, and this would be divisive. Whereas a king or a queen, they rise above party politics and they can unite the nation. And so to see the king or queen as a neutral figure rather than a figure that is deeply entwined with the conservative party's history and particularly the conservative vision of Britain, I think is very telling. And we lose sight in that how deeply entangled the royal family and the conservative party have been historically and even in the present. And we can talk a little bit in this conversation kind of what I mean by the Tory nation and what role the conservative party has in that because it is only one part of, of what I call the Tory nation. But to use a very recent example of how the palace and the Conservative Party can, you know, their underlying invisible unity is a detail that I include in the book, which is that when David Cameron was applying to become a researcher at the Conservative Party, there's this, you know, very famous story within the party that was kind of widely reported when Cameron was becoming leader which was that just before Cameron's interview, the Conservative Party HQ got an anonymous phone call from the palace. And the anonymous voice on the other side of the phone said, you're about to meet a remarkable young man. We've tried everything to dissuade him from entering into politics, but we haven't been successful. The Conservative Party heeded the advice and, yeah, hired him. You know, it's very possible that he would have been hired anyway. But in a way, the most interesting aspect of that isn't necessarily the call itself. It's that we still don't know who it was because there are so many possible eligible candidates who could be making that call on David Cameron's behalf. I mean, he's literally his, his referee for the job was someone who was very close to Prince Philip. I've forgotten his exact title, but you would never get such closely bedded ties between the palace and Labour politicians, or at least it is extremely, extremely less likely. The way in which the conservative nature of some of Britain's major institutions, I think, is perfect. And then the way in which they become neutral or they seem neutral, I think, is so well illustrated by the monarchy's status within Britain. Absolutely. And Sam, you have a really... um... You have a wonderful eye for quotes in this book. This book is sort of bristling with these amazing insights coming from um, quotes all the way through sort of Conservative Party history. And one of the ones I love, just to finish with Cameron, is that you have this quote where Cameron talks about the Queen purring down the phone to him after the Scottish referendum result. And I'd never come across this before, and I thought it was so interesting. You know, he said it was like the best day of his life or something. Yeah, yeah. And and you can actually imagine, I mean, the, the palace was furious with Cameron for saying this. It was caught on tape while Cameron was boasting about it to another world leader during some some kind of summit. And yeah, the palace was furious because, you know, it's that thing, especially with the Queen, that, you know, you weren't ever meant to know what was going on, like on the inside. And, and here was Cameron bringing a kind of emotional, you know, emotionalness to the Queen, a kind of vulnerability. But you can totally imagine it. Cameron will have felt at home talking to the Queen again in a way that a Labour leader just is is much less likely to. I mean, it's then ironic that Cameron, you know, a few years later, he goes on to hold the Brexit referendum, 
then has to resign because of the result. And that has made the United Kingdom suddenly so much more fragile in a way that he clearly was so proud of avoiding only a few years before. Well, I want to sort of backtrack and go into what I think is the central question that animates your book, which is if we look at Britain since it became a suffrage democracy, sort of any, any stage since the Great Reform Act, what we find is that the Tories win. They win all the time. They win so often that they're often called the most successful political party in any democracy anywhere in the world. Now, I think your book is very, very good at explaining why this is possible. But I just wondered if you could talk a bit about this record and how the Tories have built it over time and the kind of factors that combine to allow the Tories to do this. I think the first thing I'd like to say about the winning record is that it doesn't seem to be well known enough. You know, on the one hand, the Conservative parties are, you sometimes see them referred to as the most successful political party in the world. But I certainly found while I was writing my book when I told people this, that they were surprised. And I had been a journalist writing on British politics for several years before I kind of realised the numbers. And the, the genesis for that was actually the 2019 election. And I just remember being a little bit perturbed by the nature of the conversation and debate that was happening around not so much the run-up to the election, but actually the result. Very crudely put, it was Jeremy Corbyn is the worst Labour leader ever and Boris Johnson is the best Conservative leader ever. How did Corbyn lose this election? How did Johnson manage to pull off this incredible victory? Yeah, it was incredibly like laudatory of Johnson's unique cunning and knack to win this. Anyway, I, I just, after that, I kind of thought, oh, it's weird because I don't actually remember another Labour leader winning an election apart from Tony Blair in my lifetime. So then I, I, I went in and looked at the Conservative Party's winning record based on leaders rather than just, you know, say the last 10 elections. We've had a lot of elections in recent Years, so the, the numbers are even more in the Conservative Party's favour. But uh, a few years ago, it didn't feel quite as stark. And anyway, yeah, so I, I, I looked at the Conservative Party leaders and found that over the course of the Conservative Party's history, if you date that from about the Great Reform Act in, in, in 1832, the Conservative Party have had 19 different leaders who have contested a general election. And only four of them have ever failed to win at least one election. And two of those were against Tony Blair, so, so very recent. And then I looked at what the Labour figures were. I found it was literally almost the exact opposite, that in a, in a much shorter history, 120 years roughly, they have had 19 different leaders and only four Labour leaders have ever won an election in their history. And as of next year, the number of Labour leaders who has won an election in the last 50 years is one, Tony Blair, and by many accounts, the most conservative of Labour leaders ever. But for me, those numbers, A, didn't make sense. And I wanted to find out how they could make sense in a democracy. But I also, I was surprised to find these numbers, but I was also surprised at my surprise because I was someone who had been reading a lot about politics for the, particularly the last few years, who was very engaged in current affairs. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't know the scale of the winning record. And with the book, those in a way became the two foundational pillars of it. It was on the one hand, how does this winning record make sense? And on the other, and this kind of relates to the monarchy, how is that winning record naturalized to the point that we don't 
question it in the way that if we were just confronted with the figures, we probably would. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. The question is, which I think the book answers um, fulsomely, is, well, well, how? How does it happen? One of the things is, is one yeah. you mentioned, which is this almost this kind of like stealth mode party of government thing where you just kind of expect Tories to be running things and they expect to be running things. But you talk about the role of luck as well. There's some very interesting things about luck. When you, were, when you finished the book, what did you think was the most important reason? If we can say there's one reason. Yeah, I would probably struggle to say there was one reason and you know one of the things i wrestle with in the book is the sheer number of contradictions that define the conservative party's identity and just its history and yeah one is definitely this uh on the one hand inevitability of them winning elections but on the other hand is this kind of fragility and They've occupied a really strange status that it feels particularly stark today, but in a sense, it's always been there of being both the party of the ruling class and the underdog. And I think that really does go back to the Conservative Party's foundation, because in the 19th century, as Britain was becoming more of a democracy, there was a sequence of reforms that at least made sure the working class made up a majority of the electorate. And Britain was one of the most industrialized economies, maybe the most industrialized economy in the world. It had the biggest working class in the world. It was something like four in every five people in Britain belonged to the working class. If you're a conservative and you have unambiguous ties to the ruling class, to the elite, to the landowners, to the aristocracy, to the capitalist bosses, what could possibly be your chances of survival in an age of mass democracy. All the numbers seem stacked against you. And so you get this immediately this weird balance between the conservatives having all the money, all the contacts, all the resources, all the kind of networks of power, but also having the odds stacked against them. And that I think for them had a very galvanizing effect. The Conservative Party, they pretend that they're not interested in politics. There's a kind of snooty sense of superiority that, you know, only the left 
gets their fingers dirty in politics, where the conservatives, they've, they've got more important things to worry about. And they know that, you know, life is short and blah, 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 blah. You know, behind the scenes, they've been incredibly ruthless operators and they have been from the very beginning. Whereas for the left, you actually had the opposite. You had this sense that while they didn't have all the money, the resources, the contacts, the future was on their side. The The numbers were in their favor. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't win in one year, maybe they wouldn't win in 10 years or 20 years. But over time, it was inevitable that the Labour Party would vanquish. And I, so I think that almost led to a complacency on the Labour's behalf and you know, even before Labour on the, the left's behalf in general versus the Conservatives that have always been driven by this existential fear that their extinction could come any day now. But where, where I go with the book and you know why it can't be reduced to a single thing is I say that the Conservative Party's solution, essentially, and it was never, um, I don't think, understood as, as flatly as this, was to build an entire nation in their image. Like, how do you galvanize support among the masses for a ruling class party? You need to make it seem like the ruling class isn't something that is against you, but is something that almost belongs to you and that you too almost elevated by the regal traditions and aristocratic wealth of Britain and that belongs to British history. And so over time, helps by things like Clark, also helped by things like the British press, the evolution of the British press, which maybe we can talk a bit mm -hmm. about as well we get this image of Britain being a conservative country. And, and so that actually the, the most popular reason you often find in the, the literature that exists on the Conservative Party's history and how they have succeeded is that Britain is a conservative country. But I think what I try and do in the book is say that that Britain is a conservative country in some ways, but the Tory nation is not synonymous with Britain because the idea that... The conservatives just, you know, reflect and express the natural instincts of the British people. It just doesn't add up with how the, the Conservative Party win elections and what level of mandate they actually receive. I, you know, on average, it is about a third of the electorate, um, a, a third of voters, sorry, on mm -hmm. about 60, 70 percent turnout. And that equates to about a, only a little bit more than a quarter of the population in Britain. And it's so easy to forget that only about a quarter of Britain votes for the Conservative Party consistently. They, they are a minority, and but they have the Conservative Party, you know, through the arc of British history, have created this idea of a Conservative country to the point where even if you've got a similar amount of the population that votes for Labour, they seem like a fringe force within Britain, whereas the Conservative Party feel like the dominant force, even though in terms of number, like numerical support for each party, it's, it's pretty much equal. Let's talk a bit about what conservatives actually believe. Because again, I think this is a really original part of the book. We know that conservatives like to talk about common sense. We know they like to talk about a supposed suspicion of abstract ideas and ideology. And often, I think this unites many conservative politicians down the years. They will talk about Edmund Burke, the 18th century uh, statesman philosopher, as the kind of wellspring of their ideas. Now, Burke is usually presented as a kind of cuddly figure, sort of Rory Stewart kind of figure, not a sort of hell-raising, bloodthirsty guy. And 
you just take Edmund Burke to the cleaners in this book. And it's very, very <laughs> entertaining the way you do it. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about both the legacy of Burke and what he actually was, what you discovered about Burke. I think it's a super, you know, really, really good part. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it, so in the second chapter of the book on what, what do conservatives believe, it's a, it's a very slippery ideology. And in many ways, nothing kind of reflects that slipperiness more than the idea that Edmund Burke is the patron saint of moderate conservatism. You know, as I say, it's like almost every single conservative leader has at some point in their career been accused of betraying the conservative tradition. There is almost nothing more conservative than being accused of betraying the conservative tradition. The one person, though, who has never been accused of that, the one, the one person who is said to just kind of spiritually embodied it is someone who was categorically not a conservative, Edmund Burke. He, he lived and died before the term really came into existence. He belonged to the opposition of the Tories, the Whigs. He, he wasn't even really a political philosopher. He was an incredible thinker and inc an incredible orator and a very complicated person. Like One of the things that I, I say in the book is that Burke is both more progressive and more reactionary than this Burkean hologram that we you know often see today where all he stands for is common sense, prudent reform, stability, wisdom, etc., etc. But the ways in which he was a reactionary are very interesting. And one of my favorite quotes that I, I find in the book is by Mary Wollstonecraft, who really does not like Burke at all and, and sees what the kind of platform that he advocates, uh, the politics that he advocates is really just defending inequality, strict hierarchy. Basically, you know, Burke believes that happiness lies in accepting your place and that it's for the best of society that some people have loads of power and loads of wealth and other people have none at all this is both the lord's work and the laws of commerce which in burke become basically the, the same thing which was quite common of liberal thinkers at that time but anyway Mar mary wollstonecraft says that and, and Burke is also most famous for his um, attack on the, the Jacobins and the French Revolution. Wollstonecraft says that actually the intensity and fervor of Burke's thought, that the kind of reactionariness of it is such that she's sure that if he was born in France, he would be a revolutionary. He would be a Jacobin. He's just the kind of English equivalent of it, which is basically a Tory. And what you see in Burke this idea that, you know, he even says at one point, sometimes to beat the revolutionaries, you need to adopt their strategies and, you know, you need to act like one. And I think what's also interesting is that Burke, you know, at what point did Burke become the chief ambassador of conservatism? And there's there's a great book actually on exactly this, which is, it's, it, I think it's called Edmund Burke but, and the Invention of Modern Conservatism. It's by... Emily Jones, and she does a kind of literary history, an, an intellectual history, sorry, of Edmund Burke and his evolution, his death, and then his resurrection as conservative mascot. And when it happens is actually in the 1880s, when you get the third suffrage reform, I think it was in 1882 or 1884, maybe. And at that point is when elections really become meaningful in Britain. That is when I think a working class, the working class makes up a majority 
uh, of the electorate and it's now the conservatives against the liberals and the liberals are more as the Whigs were kind of more pro-reform and the, the conservatives are more pro-stability and they need an identity to campaign on what is the kind of essence of, of, of the conservative party and Emily Jones shows amazingly how they find Burke and they turn Burke into what they want their platform to be. And they slightly pick and choose his quotes. And by kind of the 1910s, you've then got conservatives saying there is no clearer articulation of the conservative tradition than in the work and speeches of Edmund Burke. But this really happened posthumously. And, you know, I probably not always consciously, but quite cynically, they, they needed this Burke and they, they almost invented him. And I think the more time has gone since then, the more we have lost sight of, you know, the complex, of, of course, Black Burke was a complex thinker. You know, this idea, when you really think about it, it was probably always going to collapse upon close scrutiny because no one can really live up, apart from, you know, Rory Stewart might say himself, uh, no one else can really live up to this ideal of prudent, moderate reform and where moderation, regardless of your context, becomes your chief value. Ultimately, you know, everyone really believes in something. And I should also say, actually, that in the reactionary mind, Corey Robin, um, he also takes on this interpretation of Burke very well. I think the word that comes out, that jumps out from what you just said about Burke, and, and one of the words that I think is a real motif in the book, is paradox. And so Burke was a paradoxical man. And, you know, the Conservative Party, if you look at its record over history, does paradoxical things. And I think let's just take it towards the Conservative Party today. What we saw with Brexit was a lot of MPs who wanted Singapore on Thames, a lot of voters who wanted a bigger state, and Boris Johnson, probably the person least suited to straddling this paradox, in charge of the country for three appalling years. Mm -hmm. And where, where do you think we've gone now with the Tory party? Because we've had that Johnsonian moment and a supposed realignment. And then we've had the sort of suicide bomber reign of Liz Truss. Um, and now we appear to be in sort of, I don't know, friendly head boy, bank manager, territory Rishi and a kind of renewed Osbornian technocracy maybe. But that's just a word salad. I, I think, you know, where do you see the Conservative Party now? You know, in the book, I emphasise continuities and I I lean towards emphasising continuities even between... I think Liz Truss, you know, she uh, she stepped out. I mean, this won't surprise anyone, but she stepped out in the wrong direction. I actually... I, I think the Conservative Party over the last 10 years have had two great opportunities to transform themselves. Brexit was an incredible... Liz Truss, before she became Prime Minister, she described it as having a, a year zero effect Brexit created these these new political coalitions. It saw the Conservative Party go against itself. So you had this split between Cameron and Osborne and Johnson and Gove and, you know, going into the, like, you could psychoanalyze that split and you could certainly question the principles involved. I, I don't think anyone really believes that Johnson had an ideological split with Cameron. But yeah, you had the, this Conservative Party go against itself. And so as a result of that, there was also the opportunity to kind of relaunch the Conservative Party as something else. And I think Theresa May rhetorically actually tried that. Like her first speech after becoming Prime Minister was very much anti-Cameron and anti-Osborne. But in terms of policy, 
nothing really changed. And it was interesting that that then kind of happened again with Johnson. There was again a sense that Johnson was the one nation Tory. I think the Tories always, one half of the Tory party is always hankering for this one nation Tory to, to suddenly rise up and unite the nation. And Theresa May tried to do that. Boris Johnson, they, they really wanted him to do that and thought that they could just say that he had after his election, when even though the numbers never really reflected that. The 2019 election, I think there was a feeling that Johnson, you know, again, not for any ideological reasons, not for any real reasons apart from himself, he might turn on the spending taps and what room was left for Labour. It never happened. And I think it's very interesting to ask why didn't that happen? Because I think Johnson, if he could have, he would have, because it would have been an easy win for him. But actually he didn't because there are other very powerful forces within the Conservative Party. And I think in a way, for me, the most interesting moment of Johnson's uh, leadership happened right at the end when he was about to be forced out. Everyone was resigning except for Nadine Dorries. No one was for Johnson apart from Nadine, except this letter then was sent, an, an open letter from I think it was 20 donors who had a net, combined net worth of like 30 billion or something, an, an exorbitant amount of money between them. Most of them were on Sunday Times rich list. And they say a letter saying to Conservative MPs saying, no, 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 you must keep Johnson. We don't know why they wanted to keep Johnson, but we can assume that it wasn't because of the, his devotion to the realignment of British politics. There was a sense that they felt like he was in their interests, that they could wield influence within the Conservative Party in a way that they wouldn't be able to without him there. So I think that was the biggest tell that no change really happened under Johnson, that his this talk of the realignment through Johnson and the talk of the red ball, you know, suddenly stinging the conscience of conservatives was never really had any any basis in policy. And so it was clear that it was it was, you know, it was an empty transformation. The second moment for transformation that I thought maybe be even bigger was the death of the Queen. Johnson, who had become extremely divisive and who will have been absolutely mortified not to be at number 10 Downing Street when the Queen died, just for pure optics. You know, there's a real chance for a new Conservative leader to come in and to, to tap in to that mood of togetherness and transcendence that the, the Queen's funeral had created. And instead, Liz Truss comes in and says, we're going to abolish the cap on bankers' bonuses. That's what we need. It couldn't have been more out of tune with what the opportunity, you know, opened up. And I find both of those incidents very interesting because it shows you where that anchor of the Conservative Party is. There's something that is refusing to let them move further to the left on the economy, even though it's pretty clear that it's not only what the country needs, but it's, it's what they need to refresh their identity, to kind of potentially repopularize them in a way that is just not happening. But they seem incapable of doing that. And so you just see these in incredibly desperate, degrading for them, but also, you know, actively harmful for others that lurch into culture wars. Rishi Sunak, 
I refuse to believe that he really thinks that small boats crossing the channel is the gravest threat that Britain faces, but it's probably what he speaks about the most. And that tells you everything about how out of ideas they are currently and how incapable they seem in a substantive policy sense, changing direction. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Sam, was you have a, a very interesting chapter on the Labour Party. I think one of the lines in it is when Labour do govern, they do so on Tory terms. Now, you know, far be it from me to condemn poor Sakir Starmer, but he does sort of look like he fits into the pattern you, you describe in the book. It's very stark to see that even with the, the state of Britain being so bad financially, socially, one crisis after the next, even with the Conservative Party doing so badly in the polls, themselves having had one crisis after the next, there's something dispiriting to see in a, in a democratic sense, not even from a you know, particularly ideolo- ideological sense, it's dispiriting from a democratic sense the hoops that Keir Starmer still thinks he needs to jump through to win an election, that you know, this should be the opportunity in which an alternative party should be able to pitch its alternative platform. But instead, Keir Starmer feels that he needs to lurch further to the right and placate the very forces that have brought Britain to this, to this state. You know, I was born in 1992, so I don't really remember the, the 1997 election, the Labour landslide. But I, when I look back at that, I find it really interesting that Labour needed to rebrand itself New Labour when it had already been out of power for 18 years. Like the, the very idea of a Labour government, you would think, would have seemed new. But in still, even then, after 18 years out of power, Labour was the one that was needing to rebrand itself that it was unburdened of its past. Um, And, you know, I was speaking earlier about what the anchoring forces within the Conservative Party might be. I think Blair's behaviour in the run-up to his election win and now Keir Starmer's behaviour in the lead-up to his potential election win, again, they hint at where the anchors of power lie in Britain. And they do not lie within the electorate. They lie within, I think, certain institutions and they lie within parts of the financial sector, parts of the media, places that are immune to electoral defeat. And one of the things I I say in the book is that to defeat the Tory nation, it requires much more than a Labour election win. I mean, the Tory nation has survived, you know, not many Labour wins just because there haven't been many. The Tory party has literally suffered seven significant defeats in the last 150 years. It can easily endure those things because there are so many other poles of conservative power. And Keir Starmer doesn't seem interested in in challenging them. There's a quote I include in the book is, I think it's the chief whip of the Conservative Party, his reaction uh, to Labour's landslide in 1945, where he says, it feels like my entrails have been ripped out of my body. And, you know, it was Labour's win in 1945 represented an existential threat to the Tory nation, no doubt. Uh, I, I was speaking to uh, Johan Koshi yesterday about my book, and he, he said it rem- that reminded him of, in 2017, the story of the Tory staffer who, when Corbyn deprived May of a majority, he someone was, like, vomiting in, like, Conservative Party HQ again. It was like a... 
it was an existential threat to the Tory nation. My kind of wager would be that I don't think anyone in the Conservative Party really had that reaction in 1997. And if Keir Starmer carries on this course, they won't have this reaction after the next election either. That's just one way of saying that Keir Starmer's not really trying to challenge the Tory nation with an alternative vision. He's much more, I'd say, playing its game. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. To hear the rest of the conversation, visit intelligencesquared.com slash membership. The event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, peruse our back catalogue or attend some of our live events, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.